we're delighted that each of you are here to study on the authority of scriptures. Larry Bogus, a dear friend, president of the West Virginia Conference, and uh, Mike Hewitt, the uh, secretary of the conference, introduced the class. I have a special affinity for them because we just have hosted all the pastors at the West Virginia, from the West Virginia Conference at our Living Hope School of Evangelism. And uh, they came for a number of days and we studied evangelism and its practices. At the Living Hope School of Evangelism, we have three kinds of seminars that take place. We have what we call the Sunday seminar where area churches come in, they study from nine to five o'clock on things like lay Bible instruction, maybe one Sunday, another Sunday they'll study health evangelism, another Sunday how to reach former Seventh-day Adventists. And so we have that particular seminar. Then we have a five to seven day seminar where pastors bring their lay people or pastors come in and we study principles of church growth and evangelism. Then every summer we have an academic program where we teach graduate students the um, varying topics. Uh, they are taking a master's degree in religion and specifically in evangelism and these students this summer I was studying with them the book of Acts I was telling some of you earlier, I told my students this summer, there are only two questions on the final exam, that's all, in the book of Acts, just two questions. I told them this the first day of class. Question number one, tell me in specific detail what's in every chapter of the book of Acts. <laughs> Question number two, tell me what that means in your life and how that's going to change your ministry. So one of my students was a CPA and he said, the last exam I took that was this tough was my CPA exam, and it took me four hours to write it. So I will not give you that exam at the end of this class. When I attend a seminar, I like to know a little bit about the seminar itself, and I have really three objectives in this particular seminar. Objective number one is to create greater confidence in your heart in the Word of God. Whatever your confidence is when you came into class, I want you to leave with greater confidence in both the integrity, the clarity, the purity, and the authority of the Word of God. Second thing is I want you to have some general understanding of the issues that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is facing today in the authority of the Word of God. We are facing some incredibly complex and very important issues. Thirdly, I want to try to put in your hands a few effective tools so that your own Bible study will be more effective for you. So with that background, let's dive right into our subject. Most of you, when you came in, received a study guide, and I'm going to ask Mike to go to the back of the room so that as people come in, they can get one. Is there anybody that does not have a study guide? It'll be very helpful to you as you go through the seminar together. I'm going to move quite quickly as we go through the material, but if you have a study guide in your hand, you will be able to follow along. Some of you may want to write different notes in your study guide. The study guide is not an exhaustive manual on what we're going to present today, but it does give you an outline, and uh, I will point out certain things in the study guide as we go. The authority of scripture has become a major issue today, not only in Christianity in general, but surprisingly enough in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
Now, the question that some people are going to raise is this. Isn't the Bible as the basis of authority rather a given in the Adventist church? Why would we even have a seminar on the authority of the Bible? It's, it's really remarkable that a denomination that is based on the Bible as its foundation of faith and the reason for its existence is even conducting a seminar on the authority of the Bible. But we find that there are inroads being made and questions are being asked on the authority and the role of the Bible that are pretty serious. For example, should the Bible be the final authority on matters of lifestyle? matters of belief or in matters in all matters of belief is the bible reliable only when it speaks about subjects of salvation or its statements on creation morality marriage divorce history science are they authoritative what role do social or cultural factors play in shaping the biblical text in other words is is the bible largely a cultural document that reflects the uh, culture of its time. We need to take a look at some of those questions. Now, more importantly, what difference does all this make in the life of the church? How, how does the authority of Scripture really impact our lives? Is this an academic exercise, or does it make practical difference in how we view Scripture? Now, we're going to look at all of this in seven different parts. We're going to look at the Bible's own claims for its authority. What does the Bible say about its own authority? Then we're going to look at Jesus' claims on the authority of Scripture. We'll look at that at the second part. Then we'll look at the Protestant Reformation and its claims on the authority of Scripture. We'll look at early Adventists and their belief in the authority of Scripture. And then we'll look at history, science, and lifestyle and how that relates and impacts the authority of Scripture. Then I want to take a very serious look at some limitations in certain methods of Bible study that are being promoted today. We're going to take a look at some of the limitations in those methods, and I want you to understand some of the pitfalls of them. And then lastly, we'll look at some of the principles for genuine Bible study and how to get the most out of the Bible. If you have your Bible with you, I really hope that you'll be able to follow along because we're going to look at a lot of texts. It's, it's hard to really get into the authority of the Bible and not get into the Bible, right? So let's look at section one, and you'll find this in your study guide, the Bible's claims regarding its own authority. In more than 3,000 places, the Bible claims to be inspired by God. Expression after expression are like this, and the Lord said... God spoke through the prophets. The Lord declared. They're very common. Let me give you some examples. Take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 43 through 45. These are very common expressions. In fact, they appear more than 3,000 times in the Bible. Isaiah 43. We're looking at the Bible's own claims about its authority. Isaiah 43 verse 1. But now says the Lord... So when Isaiah wrote Isaiah 43, who did he believe God was speaking through? To he, he believed that God was speaking. He didn't believe that these were his words. He didn't uh, believe that they were merely shaped by an uh, Israeli culture. 
But now thus says the Lord. Look at Isaiah 44, verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made you. Again, same expression. You look at Isaiah chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. So when the Bible writers wrote, they believed that they were writing down the authoritative word, the eternal word of God. Now when you find this both in the Old and New Testament, take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's a very familiar passage, but I want to look at it with new eyes. I want to look at it with a fresh look today. 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 21. You recognize that the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And there's an expression in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, that is often overlooked. Now the text as it reads in the New King James Version, and King James says something very much like this. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So obviously what Peter is saying is that the writers of the Bible did not write merely with the context of their own background or the context of their own will. That they were guided, directed, and moved by the Holy Spirit. But there's a nuance in that passage that sometimes we overlook. You see, look at verse 21 again. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God. So you see the expression of God. Do you see that in text? How many see that in the text? Of God. Okay. The question is, does the expression of God modify men, where it says holy men of God, or does that express, or should that expression come after the word spoke? I believe that it should come after the word spoke. Of in that passage is better translated from. And if you do it that way, it's much stronger in the text. So let me read it that way. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That's verse 20. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. See, the Greek expression is much better because these holy men speak from God. In other words, they're an authoritative, eternal voice that comes from God. So when you and I pick up the Bible, based on the Bible's own claims, we are looking at a document that is not largely the product of human culture. It's not largely the product. Now notice my phrasing is very careful. I do not say there are no cultural influences in the Bible. Did each Bible writer write from the context of their background? Certainly. Did each Bible writer reflect their culture? Certainly. But it's like this. Here's my jacket. So my jacket is going to represent culture. If I put on a jacket that is dark blue, am I the, still the same person? Am I still Mark Finley? But if I put on a jacket that's gray, do I look a little bit different, but am I still Mark Finley? If I put on a plaid jacket... Am I still Mark Finley? 
So you read Isaiah. He reads a little different than Amos. You read Psalms. David is a poet and a musician. And you read the musical nature of the Psalms. You read Amos, who's a sheep's herder. He, he reads a little differently. You read Paul, a theologian, who's going to read a little differently than Peter. That does not deny the authenticity of the Bible. It rather increases its authenticity. Because men diff writing from different cultural backgrounds reveal the will of God. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. The Bible itself authenticates itself by declaring that it is the authoritative word of God. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. You know it well. And here the Bible itself is its own authentic, it gives its seal of, of authority. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16 says this. All scripture. Now that's going to be important later in our study. All scripture is inspired, given by inspiration of God, and is profitable. For doctrine. So from Genesis to Revelation, Scripture is authoritative. The New Testament is no more or less inspired than the Old Testament. All Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Now the evidences of the inspiration of the Bible from archaeology, from prophecy, and from history are overwhelming. You can look at uh, archaeology, and we'll look at later. There are more than 100 places in archaeology that uh, have been confirmed. A hundred places and names of people that have been confirmed in archaeology found in the Bible. You look at the prophecies of the Bible, the history of the Bible, written over 1,500 years, 40 different authors. You have the cohesive element where the Bible written by over 40 different authors. You see the Bible, there's a unity in the Bible. You know, if you go out here on the streets of Houston and you say here in Houston, to 10 different people. What happens when you die? One person says, when you die? Well, nothing. You're in the grave, man. That's it. Somebody else says, when you die? Well, you, um, you, you reincarnated. Somebody else says, when you die, there's a, there's a soul that wings its way to heaven. You meet an Adventist going to ASI, and they say, when you die, what happens? Well, you rest until Jesus comes, right? You can go out, and here you have people living at the same time, in the same city, with the same background, but they have all different views. When you look at the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, written over 1,500 years of time by 40 different authors, coming from different backgrounds, coming from different cultures, yet when they write about death, you see the same message. They write about heaven, same message. Second coming of Christ, same message. There's the prophecy of the Bible, the history of the Bible, the archaeology of the Bible, the cohesive unity of the Bible, the ageless durability of the Bible. They're powerful indicators. Look over study guide, point three, top of page two. Bible writers present an exalted view of the Word of God. For the Bible writers, the Bible is the voice of God speaking through the human agent as an authoritative voice to the people of God. According to, to Proverbs 30, verse 5, it's pure. 
John 17, 17, it's true. Hebrews 4, 12, it's powerful. John 10, verse 35, it cannot be broken. Isaiah 40, verse 8, it stands forever. Now, both in the Old and New Testament, point four, page two, both in the Old and New Testament, serious warnings are given regarding diminishing the role of Scripture in the life of the church or in the life of our daily lives. Look, for example, at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. And here, you'll notice there are some very strong warnings in Scripture given. And this applies not only to the immediate text of the book of Deuteronomy, but it applies to Scripture in general. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. And you'll notice this dire warning that God gives to Israel. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take anything from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. So here, the authority of Scripture is exalted by the Bible writers. And there's the clear command not to take anything from Scripture. You find this as well in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 18 and 19. Revelation chapter 22, and you're looking there at verse 18 and verse 19. You find as well, throughout Scripture, Bible writers exalt the authority of Scripture. And they urge us against reducing the that authority. Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy, this book certainly applies to Revelation, but it certainly applies to all the Bible. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to them the plagues that are written in this book. Anyone takes away from the words of this book, God will take away the words of prophecy. Uh, God will take his name from the and takes away from the word of prophecy, God will take his part from the book of life. So we've seen that 3,000 places the Bible declares it's inspired. We've seen the emphasis in Scripture itself on the authority of Scripture. Now when the Bible writers wrote, there was this blending of the human and the divine. There are those who see the human aspects of the Bible and assert that it's largely culturally conditioned and must be understood against the backdrop of the culture of its times. They downplay the divine supernatural element in Scripture and focus on the human. Now, it's true that human beings wrote the Bible in the context of their own background experience, but that does not deny, as we've said earlier, the divine aspect. I want you to look at the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 119, verse 89 and 90. Psalm 119, and we're going to look at verse 89 and 90. Because I want to delve into this blending of the human and divine in Scripture with you. Psalm 119, verse 89 and 90. Notice what the scripture says. Psalm 119th, you're looking at the 89th verse. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. 
Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the truth, the earth, and it abides. Now, I'm interested in this phrase, forever your word, O Lord, is settled in heaven. The word of God comes to us from the mind of God, written by human agents in the background of their own experience and culture. But that does not deny the divine authority of God's word. Now, there are three key statements in the writing of Ellen White on the blending of the human and divine. I've given you one of them in your outline, but I want to read to you extensively from all of them. The one that I've given you is First Selected Messages, page 20. I'm going to come to that secondly. That's on the next page of your outline. But I want to read to you two statements that I have not given you, but you can copy down the reference. Fifth volume of the testimony said page 747. What about this divine human element in the Bible? I'm reading from the fifth volume of the testimonies. The union of the divine and human manifest in Christ exists also in the Bible. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? Was Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit? Was he? Was Jesus born in the womb of Mary? So you have in Jesus the combination of what? The human and divine. Does the humanity of Christ make him any less divine? Not at all. Does the humanity of the Bible make it any less divine or authoritative? Not at all. Now listen as I continue. The truths revealed... The truths revealed are all given by inspiration of God. That's in the Bible. Yet they are expressed in the words of men and adapted to human needs. Thus it may be said of the book of God, as it was of Christ, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And this fact, so far from being an argument against the Bible, should strengthen faith in it as the word of God. So the fact that in the Bible we have the blending of the human and the divine does not depreciate from the word of God, but it rather strengthens our faith in the word because we see God working through the human agent to exalt his own name. Now, listen, those who pronounce upon the inspiration of the scriptures accepting some portions as divine while they reject others as human overlook the fact that Christ the divine partook of human nature, that he might reach humanity. In the work of God for man's redemption, divinity and humanity are combined. So God in Christ, God in Christ reveals himself as the divine human savior of the world. God in the Bible reveals himself as the word become flesh. The divine human is manifest in the Bible. Now, let's look at the statement in First Selected Messages, page 20. I've given it to you here, and let's read it together. Reading together from your study guide, First Selected Messages. The Bible is not given to us in grand superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is imperfect. Different meanings are expressed by the same word. 
there is not one word for each distinct idea. The Bible was given for practical purposes. Now, I'm interested in this, these two statements. The Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is imperfect. Does that mean that there are imperfections in the Bible? It does. It does. Now, let me explain that to you before you get nervous. If you look at the original manuscripts, you will find, for example, I'll give you Isaiah 53. If you look at Isaiah 53 and the scribal manuscripts, you may have in Isaiah 53 nine words that have little different spellings in them. You may have a word that's left out. Do Seventh-day Adventists believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible? What is that? Do we believe that God in heaven dictated to Isaiah every single word? We do not believe that, do we? So there are some scribal imperfections. But when you take every manuscript of Isaiah 53, there is no difference in content when it comes to that which is being communicated. So you can take it. So there may be a little different spelling and nuance. There may be a word that you don't see in one manuscript. That's what Ellen White means when there's imperfections. But there is nothing in Scripture. You can look at the greatest linguists in the Bible. You can look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and see. You know, it's very interesting. In the Dead Sea Scrolls now, we've found about approximately 12 different manuscripts of Isaiah. But you know the second most popular manuscript that the Qumran community, the Essenes, copied? The Book of Daniel. The Book of Daniel. And so you can look at those comparisons in the copying of the scrolls and see the same message. There may be a little variant in spelling from time to time. So that's what she means here. Now, next reference that I want to give you is uh, the Great Controversy. In the introduction of Great Controversy, there is a marvelous section on the inspiration of the Bible. And you find that in Great Controversy, uh, Roman numeral 6, you know, when you have the introduction of Great Controversy, you don't have the page numbers yet beginning. And so, um, written in different ages by men who differed widely in rank and occupation and in mental and spiritual endowments, the books of the Bible, Ellen White says, present a wide contrast in style as well as a diversity in the nature of the subjects unfolded. They had different forms of expression by different writers. Often the same truth is more strikingly presented by one man than another. Often several writers present a subject under varied aspects and relations. There may be appear to be to the superficial, careless, and prejudiced reader a discrepancy or contradiction. But the thoughtful, reverent student with clear insight discerns the underlying harmony of the Word of God. Isn't that good news? Now, the Bible is the product of the divine and the human. God spoke to the prophets in visions and dreams. He impressed the minds of righteous men throughout biblical history, inspiring them through his Holy Spirit with divine truths. But as they wrote down these eternal God-given truths in human language guided by the Spirit, the community of believers in the Old and New Testament accepted these words as the eternal authoritative voice of God. 
They accepted them as the revealed will of God for the people of God. Now, the highest authority is God himself. The highest authority is God himself. So that leads me to the second section, and it's this. Jesus is a revelation of God. Jesus is God made flesh. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Now, where did Jesus turn for his source of authority? Well, let's look to see where Jesus turned to his source of authority. When he was tempted in the wilderness, where did he turn for his source of authority? Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. What does it say there? Matthew 4, verse 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you look, for example, you know, Jesus, let's go to Luke 4, verse 18. Jesus looked to his source of authority to the word of God. You go to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. How did Jesus find authority for the basis of his ministry? For the basis of Jesus' ministry, he turned to the book of Isaiah. And he found in Isaiah's prophetic utterances his basis for the authority of his ministry. Luke 4, verse 18. Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Capernaum. We'll look at verse 17 as well. And Jesus stands up there in the synagogue. And he says, and he he was handed the book of Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So Jesus found in his own ministry, the foundation for that ministry, the prophetic authority for that ministry found it in the book of Isaiah. Remember when Jesus was on the Emmaus Road and he was walking that eight-mile trek on the Emmaus Road with those disciples. And as he did, the Bible talks about the fact that their eyes were holden. And where did Jesus go to prove that he was the Messiah? Remember what the Bible says? It says he opened to their understanding from the prophets and the Psalms and the law of Moses, all things concerning him. Jesus found his prophetic authority as the divine Messiah in the Old Testament scrolls. So Jesus looked to the Bible. Peter Van Bimmelen, in the book Understanding Scripture and Adventist Approach, page 77, puts it this way. And it is Christ of whom the Spirit-given Scriptures testify who puts his seal of divine authority on the God-breathed Scriptures. Now, one of the greatest testimonies to the authority of Scripture is the testimony of Jesus himself. Jesus' life was governed by the authority of Scripture. Since there's no higher authority than God himself. Do you agree with that? There's no higher authority than God? Since there's no higher authority than God himself, his seal on the Scriptures 
authority as the highest commendation possible. So we've looked at the authority of the Bible as outlined in Scripture. We've looked at the authority of the Bible as demonstrated in the life of Christ. Now let's move from there to the authority of the Bible in the light of the Reformation. We'll look at the authority of the Bible in the light of the Reformation. Now the Protestant reformers such as Huss, Jerome, Tyndall, Luther, Swingley, Calvin clearly recognized that the only thing that would break the stranglehold of papal tradition and dogma was the clear teaching and powerful proclamation of the Word of God. They knew that the dogma and traditions and the stranglehold of the papacy would not be broken if the authority of the church was greater than the authority of God, the Word of God. And so the, the authority of the scriptures rather than the authority of the church was at the heart of Reformation theology. Luther appealed to the authority of the Bible above the authority of the priests, the prelates, or, or, or the papacy. Now, in June of 1520, a papal bull came out condemning 41 of Luther's teachings. And Luther argued against it. And I want to read you Luther's argument. He says this, Scripture alone is the true Lord and Master of all writings and doctrine on the earth. If that is not granted... What is scripture good for? The more we reject it, the more we become satisfied with man's books and human teachings. What Luther said should echo and re-echo in our hearts today. If the Bible is not the basis of our authority, what tends to happen is we shift to theologians. And those theologians and the books that they have written replace the clear, plain teachings of the Word of God. Now let me be, let me go a little bit on that on the edge here. When you're 72 years old, you can become a little edgy. Do you listen to 3ABN or Hope Channel more than you read the Bible? Do you read literature about the Bible more than you read the Bible. You see, if you allow, as good as it is, Adventist media and the luminaries on Adventist media to shape your theological understanding, you are like, no, I can't say that. <laughs> I was going to say you're like the cow eating grass then the person gets the milk. The nutrients are in the vegetables. Not that the, what was that illustration all about? <laughs> secondhand, that's it, you got it, secondhand. You can get the, your, your truth secondhand, you see. And it's always dangerous to get your truth secondhand, isn't it? I am not suggesting that we shouldn't watch Adventist television, listen to Adventist radio. I'm on it a few times. I'm not suggesting either that we shouldn't read good books. But what I am suggesting is that when anything takes the place of the Word of God, that becomes your authority figure in your life. And that God is still speaking through His Word to mine the Word of God. The Reformers believed in the authority, clarity, and certainty in the life-changing power of Scripture. 
They rejected all human attempts to reduce Scripture's authority. They were convinced. Now, this is a principle of the Reformation. The Reformers were convinced that the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Word, was the best interpreter of the Word, not theologians. That's what the Reformers believed. They were convinced that the Holy Spirit, speaking through the words of Scripture in its totality, was the final authority and best interpreter of his own words. The Reformers forcefully taught that the Holy Spirit would make the words of Scripture plain to all those who approach the Bible with an honest heart. Now, there are, and I've listed it here in your study guide, there are three concepts that all must be blended together when it comes to Scripture and its authority. We call them sola scriptura, the primacy of Scripture, and totus scriptura. Any one of those alone is not sufficient enough. Now, that may surprise you. See, in sola scriptura, and Luther emphasized this powerfully, that means the Bible and the Bible only. In other words, that the Bible is superior to tradition. Sola scriptura is true only if you put it with tota scriptura, because tota scriptura is the total impact of Scripture. So, sola scriptura says the Bible and the Bible only. Yes, certainly. But you can look at a Bible text, and I can say sola scriptura, Romans 14, 5, let nobody judge you on the, on the, on the day to worship. You see, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. I can say sola scriptura, and I can say Colossians 2, verse 15, 14 and 15, and uh, talk about the Sabbath day there. Or Romans 14, 5, one man esteems one day above another, another esteems everyone alike. I can say sola scriptura and be a Baptist and read to you about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? So you have to blend sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only, with the primacy of scripture, with, with the tota scriptura, everything in scripture. So if I want to understand the Bible, what do I do? I try to look at all of scripture as a whole and look at what scripture says about that topic. That's where the primacy of scripture comes in. So sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only. Tota scriptura, all of the Bible. And um, the primacy of Scripture has to do with placing the Bible as the prime arbiter of all doctrine and teachings. The Reformers believe that the Holy Spirit speaking through the words of Scripture in its totality, not in one part, uh, was the final authority and the best interpreter of Scripture. Now, we've looked at the Bible and its claims about its authority. We've looked at Jesus and his claims to the Bible and authority. We've looked at the Protestant reformers and their claims to biblical authority. Now, what about the authority of the Bible in areas of science and history? The Bible is not primarily a history book. But where it speaks on history, it's accurate. See, the, the purpose of the Bible is not to give you a history of the Middle East. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal the great controversy from Eden lost to Eden regained. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal Jesus and all of his magnificence, all of his beauty and all of his love and all of his goodness and all of his grace. That's why Jesus said in John 5 verse 39, you search the scriptures, but they are they that testify of me. 
So the prime purpose of the Bible is not a history book. But where the Bible touches on history, it's accurate. The prime purpose of the Bible is not at all a scientific manual. But where the Bible touches on science, it indeed is accurate. So throughout the scripture, it is surprisingly accurate when it touches on subjects of history and touches on subjects of science. Let me give you some examples of that. First, Bible touching on varying historical events. The Bible described David, for example, as the king of Israel. Many of the modern scholars, now you know, if you know anything about the background of Israel, you know there are two major universities, scholarly universities, Tel Aviv and Hebrew University. Tel Aviv is a more liberal university that downplays the historicity of the Old Testament. Hebrew University is much more conservative. So the scholars from Tel Aviv basically for many years said they had a revisionist history of the Old Testament, which they basically were saying that, that David certainly was not the king of a monarchy. They denied that. They certainly would deny the David and Goliath story. The archaeologists were digging up at a place called Dan, digging in something called Tel Dan. Now, you know, in archaeology, Tel is not T-E-L-L, it's T-E-L. Tel is a mound because these ancient uh, civilizations, as they, uh, as they are destroyed, they build up on, they build these mounds. So the archaeologists are digging in this Tel Dan. They come across what's called an inscription to David, king of Israel. So the historicity of David is indeed confirmed by archaeology. Um, you see that too in Kerbet Kaafa, where Dr. Hassel's team uh, from Southern Adventist University, along with Hebrew University, excavated, and they excavated the Israeli site where the Israelis camped when they were gonna, when David was gonna fight the David, when he was gonna fight Goliath. You know one way we know that that was an Israeli site? When you excavate the um, Philistine sites, they've got about 15% pig bone. When you, when you excavate the Israeli sites, they have no pig bone. No, except one Israeli site, they found one-tenth of a percent pig bone. So they even had people that apostatized there. They must have gone out and ate the pork behind the tree or something. But anyway, um, so the Bible, you, when it touches on history, David, accurate. Um, the Bible talks about Pilate. You go to Caesarea, you find the Pilate inscription. We can find the name of Pilate in history. You go to, for example, uh, it talks about Caiaphas as the high priest. The Israeli archaeologists were digging and they dig up a, a road and they find the family tomb of Caiaphas. So we have a hundred names of people and places that the Bible has talked about that are indeed historically accurate. Um, now, what about the issue of origins? When the Bible speaks about science, it's interesting. Let me share with you a few things that Ellen White talks about. See, if you deny, if you deny 
the first 11 chapters of the book of, of, of Genesis. And you say, you know what? That's scientific. And, and Moses was just writing in the context of his culture. And he was writing language that people might understand. But that is not really an accurate portrayal. If that is your position, how do you pick and choose which parts of the Bible are inspired and which parts are not? I mean, are the miracles not inspired? Are you going to throw those away? What about the uh, story of the Red Sea crossing? Is that not inspired? What about the manna falling down? Are you going to take that away? Are you going to say that's culturally conditioned? Once you begin to pick and choose which parts of the Bible are inspired and which parts are not, you leave yourself on a chartless sea like a boat floating with no anchor, and you reduce the Bible to a human document that is inspiring but not inspired. becomes an incredibly dangerous direction to go. But there's something deeper than that. The question of origins and the creation of the world is much more than an issue of science. It has to do with God, our creator. It has to do with the purpose of life. It has to do with our worth, our self-esteem, our eternal destiny. You see, if we have evolved, and if you can't trust the historicity of the first 11 chapters of Genesis, if they don't have authority, if you rule those out, then if we evolved, if we're no longer, no more than a biological anomaly, no more than an enlarged protein molecule, if we're no longer more than an advanced animal, we have little hope of living a, a very meaningful life here because it's survival of the fittest. We just, you better step on everybody you can to get to the highest position because there's nothing after this. See, once you begin to deny that historicity, now I recognize, I well recognize that there are those that would say, you're taking this to extreme because we believe God created the world, but we don't believe he did it in seven days. They would say, we believe that you can accept God the creator. He created it, but he let natural forces develop over millions and millions and millions of years. If that is true, which I don't believe for one minute, but if that is true, how do you explain clear biblical texts? Psalm 33, verse 6 and 9, God spoke and it was done. God commanded and it stood fast. How do you explain... Hebrews 11.1 1, that says that God created the world out of nothing. How do you go back and look at the days in Genesis where, you know, the word for day in Genesis is yom, but every time in the Hebrew language a numeral precedes the word day, it's a 24-hour period, first day, second day, third day. How do you explain the, the, the Hebrew language there? So to me, to have a revisionist history of Genesis leads you down a path that you deny the, the inspiration of and the authority of Scripture. How do you, as a Seventh-day Adventist, say that God used the longer periods of time to create the world and still have any authority of the Fourth Commandment, the Sabbath, which quotes back to the seven-day creation? See, once you go down that direction, now, let me read you some statements in Ellen White. Here is your logical conclusion. Once you begin doubting the authority of Scripture 
and make it culturally conditioned, you are going to doubt as well the Genesis account. That is going to lead you to doubt the flood story. And then how do you deal with Jesus' references to the flood story? Once you go down that road, it's also going to lead you to doubt the clear statements of Ellen White in the gift of prophecy. Because how do you harmonize the clear statements of Ellen White? So what that does is it leaves you on a real sea of uncertainty. Let me read you a couple statements. This is Counsels to Parents and Teachers, page 13. The divine mind and hand have preserved through the ages the record of creation in its purity. The divine mind and hand have preserved through the ages the record of creation in its purity. It is the word of God alone that gives to us an authentic account of the creation of the world. That, to me, is an incredibly powerful statement. It is the word of God alone that gives us an authentic account of the creation of the world. I gave that, that you have that reference there in your, uh, in your study guide. Now, the next reference is one that I've given you in part. It's Patriarchs and Prophets, page 113. But there are two or three paragraphs in that that I want to read for you that are larger and more comprehensive than what you have. So this is the same page, Patriarchs and Prophets 113. It says this, Those who doubt the reliability of the records of the Old and New Testaments will be led to go a step further and doubt the existence of God. Now this is dangerous. And then having lost their anchor, they are left to beat about upon the rocks of infidelity. These persons have lost the simplicity of faith. The Bible, there should be a settled belief in the divine authority of God's holy word. The Bible is not to be tested by men's ideas of science. Human knowledge is an unreliable guide. We can take the word of God and in the simplicity of biblical faith accept it as authoritative. Now, there are three basic approaches that are being suggested by some on the Word of God today. And I want to review those basic approaches. And I want to look at the two of them in particular and their weaknesses and give you a third alternative. Those three basic approaches that you will hear within the Adventist church are number one, the principled approach. And I'll define that and then I want to talk about its weaknesses. The second one you'll hear people say is, I take the Bible literally as it reads. That also has weakness that I want to share with you. And then I'm going to give you a third approach. The principled approach says this. When you read the Bible, don't look at what it literally says, but look for the principles behind that. Now that sounds good, but yet it poses some problems. And let me tell you what the problems it poses. If I take the principled approach, I've stood on the platforms of the world for 50 years preaching evangelistic sermons. And I've had wonderful evangelical Christians come to my meetings. And wonderful Baptist Christians. 
And after my sermon on the Sabbath, this is what they will say to me. We take the principled approach. And the principle in the Ten Commandments is worship. So therefore, it doesn't make any difference what day you worship on. I've had young people come to me, and I preach very clearly on morality, that sexual relationships are between one man and one woman after marriage. They say to me, we take the principled approach, and that is that we love one another, and therefore we can live together before marriage. I can go down on lifestyle issues. And we can talk about homosexuality. We can talk about a variety of lifestyle issues. There will be those that say, love binds us together. That's what God is talking about. We take the principled approach. That approach, although it has some value, is extremely dangerous. There are people that say, we take the principled approach when it comes to health. And sure, um, the Bible is culturally conditioned, and therefore the issues on pork are not realistic. So the principled approach is a dangerous approach. We need to take into consideration the principles. Now, there are others who are on the different end of the spectrum who say to me, I take the literal approach. Whatever the Bible says, that's it. Well, you may say that, but you don't do it. You don't do it. What do you mean by that? If you took the literal approach... When the Bible says, if your hand offends, you cut it off. If your eye offends, you pluck it out. Do you take the literal approach? You want me to tell you how I understand those texts? How do I understand the text that says, if your eye offends, you pluck it out? Let me ask you this question. Can your eye offend you? I have any physicians in the house here. Give me an anatomy and physiology description of the eye. (laughs) The eye has a retina. The eye has a cornea. Yeah. The eye is a physical element. The eye can't offend. What is it that offends? The brain. Because you can pluck out the right eye, but you can still have problems with the left one. Right? So So what is Jesus saying there? He's not saying pluck out your eye because that's not going to offend you. The eye is a physical entity. What is he saying? If the eye of your mind is offending you, deal with that thing. Deal with that thing. See, if your hand offends you, in other words, if in your brain you are abusing somebody with your hand, because all sin originates where? The heart is deceitful deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So the literalistic approach. Do we read the Bible literally? We are to read the Bible literally and take the Bible for what it reads But where there are obvious symbols involved, we apply those symbols. The principled approach is a backdrop for us. It guides us. But do you know that early Adventists neither took the principled approach or the literalistic approach? You know what they took? The comparative approach. And I want to share that with you. What's the comparative approach? Here's the comparative approach to Scripture. The comparative approach recognizes the principles in the Bible... It accepts the literal statements of the Bible guided by the totality of Scripture. It takes everything the Scripture says on a given topic and it puts that together. The the literal approach tends to look at a text rather than the totality of Scripture. The principled approach tends to be vague and it's very hard to define where the comparative approach says, yes, 
you've got to look at culture. Yes, you've got to look at language. But the Bible is the living word of God that has authority. The comparative approach says we look at the totality of Scripture and we believe that Scripture is God's mind speaking to us and we want to see it in its totality. Now, Ellen White speaks about William Miller, an early Adventist. And I want you to take a look at this. I have it in your, I have it in your notes. And she's describing William Miller in his approach to Scripture. And she says, When he found anything obscure, it was his custom to compare it with every other text which seemed to have any reference to the matter under consideration. Every word was permitted to have its proper bearing upon the subject of the text. And if his view of it harmonized with every collateral passage, it ceased to be a difficulty. Thus, whenever he met with a passage hard to be understood, he found an explanation in some other portion of the Scriptures. As he studied with earnest prayer for divine enlightenment, that which had appeared dark to his understanding was made clear. So early Adventists did not take a superficial view of the Bible. They saturated their mind with the text of Scripture. And with that text, they brought together the comparison of various texts. And as they did, they understood Scripture. Now let's look at a summary and conclusions. And then I'm going to give you a chance to ask some questions. First summary and conclusions. What are they? Here they are. The Bible and the Bible alone alone in its entirety is the source of final authority for each one of us individually and the church corporately. When the church moves away from the authority of the Bible to the authority of theologians or prelates, the church is on thin ice. When individuals purport that the cultural background of Scripture conditions the Bible to such an extent that the human overshadows the divine, we're an incredibly thin ice. When scores of church members get their primary theological teaching from TV ministries or from the books of theologians, we are on incredibly thin ice. You remember this amazing statement by Ellen White in Great Controversy. None but those who have fortified their minds with the truths of the Bible will stand through the what? Final crisis. So the Bible and the Bible alone in its entirety is the source of final authority for each one of us individually in the church. Number two. The Bible is its own expositor, and the Holy Spirit is its interpreter. When we review all the clear texts on a given topic, the meaning becomes clear. And number three, I think, is probably one of the most important, and it's this. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And the most important things in Scripture are made the most plain to the prayerful seeker. The Bible is not primarily a book for me to prove that I am right and you are wrong. It's not primarily a book for you to read, for me to read and argue theology with our friends and neighbors. The Bible provides to us the clearest revelation of who Jesus is. 
And every chapter of the Bible, every verse of the Bible, tells me something about Jesus. And as I read scripture, I am led again and again to my knees. I'm amazed by his love, and I'm charmed by his grace. I marvel at his goodness. Scripture provides for you and me an authoritative revelation of Jesus and his truth for end time. The word of God is the authoritative revelation of his will. And the central theme of that word is is Jesus and his immense love revealed for us on the cross. In the light of the great controversy between good and evil, There is no clearer revelation of God's love than God's word. For without it, the supreme revelation of God's love in Christ would be lost. I want you to think about this. If we did not have the Bible, what would you know about Jesus? If we did not have the Bible, what would you know about Jesus? If we did not have the Bible, what would you know about the plan of salvation? Where would your source of that be? How would you understand the great controversy? In the light of the great controversy between good and evil, there is no clearer revelation of God's love than God's word. For without it, the supreme revelation of God's love in Christ would be lost. Without it, his plans to triumph over evil and all hope for today, tomorrow, and forever would be gone. And so, my friend, I thank God that he still speaks with authority in the 21st century. And I know for this man... I would rather trust my life and my salvation to the authority of this book than the authority of human teachings. Well, you probably have some questions, and uh, I will not venture to tell you that I can answer every one of them, but I'll give a try. Yes, sir. Father in heaven, thank you for a group of eager students who are desirous of making the Bible the major authority of their life. Father, help us to saturate our mind with the authority of Scripture. May it shape our actions, may it guide our decisions, and may it fill our hearts with the joy of Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.